This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now, you can get a full digital access to the world's greatest source for news for $1 a week. That's four bucks a month. Four dollars. So, what I want you to do is... Go dig through your change jar, check couch cushions, or go take five bucks from that mountain of cash that you have lying around because nowhere accepts cash anymore. Then you're going to go put a mask on, go to the bank, socially distance while you wait in line, sanitize your hands, and then once you are standing on the other side of whatever form of bulletproof glass your bank has used to keep their tellers safe from COVID-19, you're going to hand that $5 bill or random sack of change, equaling $4, to the teller so that they can deposit it into your account. Then you're going to leave the bank, get back in your car, remove your mask because people that are driving alone with masks on look ridiculous. Then when you get home, you find you're in the mood to listen to Let's Talk About Chef while you cook dinner. And you're in the mood for pasta. Well, hey, you're in luck because you have a lot of pasta in your cupboard left over from your COVID panic-induced shopping. And frankly, you need to start to eat it. You dice up some bacon, onions, mushrooms, cook the pasta all while drinking a nice glass of Malbec and listening to some album by Bob Dylan. And then you think, fuck, every day I'm alive now is a special occasion, so you open another bottle of Malbec. Now, when you're on your third glass of wine from that bottle, you sit down at the table and you remember that you were going to listen to this talk about chef, so you put on the latest episode and are greeted by an ad for the New York Times. And how? It's only $1 a week. And then you remember the entire ordeal of digging for change, going to the bank, waiting in line, looking like a moron while you dump $4 of change onto the bank teller's counter, and you feel especially stupid because you have money in your account already. So embarrassed, you go to nytimes.com and subscribe for $4 a month. There, you sit back, drink some more wine, and you laugh, and you laugh, and you laugh, and you laugh. Subscribe to New York Times for a dollar a week. I am struggling with the concept of time lately. I'm not sure why days seem to go by so quickly now. Maybe we're all so used to being locked in our houses that all of a sudden being out and about feels like a sped up fever dream version of life. I don't really know. What I do know is that I miss cooking in a kitchen and I miss the idea that I could travel somewhere to eat even more. And I should probably explain. Before COVID, I was a head chef and I've been a chef for a very long time in my entire 20s actually. And now I'm 33 years old. I have never had time or money to do anything other than cook. Traveling was not an option, like it's not for most cooks and chefs, it's just not in the budget. One of life's great mysteries to me is why people assume that cooks go to exotic places and eat food all of the time. Like we can afford to take a week off, and if we could, we would get on a plane and head to Europe or Vietnam and gorge ourselves whenever we found there, and yes, obviously, we would all want to do that. But in reality, it's like you get one day off and you spend it scrambling around to do all the errands that need to get done. I think it's because of people like Anthony Bourdain or David Chang or any other travel food host. The 1% of the 1% of cooks and chefs who have the chance to travel the world have fooled people into believing that it's possible for all of us to do that. For most of us, this is a fantasy. It's a dream that we want and it won't happen. I was fine with that. But after COVID and being locked down, it made me want more than ever to have been able to travel. I want to get out. I want to eat. I traveled to Europe when I was very, very young, and I want to travel again. I want to wander down alleys in France. I want to disappear in Tokyo. I want to look at the ocean in Mexico while stuffing myself with tacos. And now none of us can do that. And it's driving me completely insane. 
So this week on Let's Talk About Chef, we're going to talk about one of the travel fantasies of mine. The concept of one day being able to go to Japan and eat sushi. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I haven't asked this in a very long time, but if you can rate the show on iTunes and maybe even write a small review, it would mean a lot. If not, just telling a friend about the show would be amazing. Word of mouth is how Let's Talk About Chef has grown so quickly, and I owe that to you listening. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It happened again last night. I was lying awake, a million different thoughts flying through my head. When is the coronavirus going to end? When will Trump get voted out, taken out, or just quit? Sushi. What happened is if he won't leave office? Sushi. What's going to happen to restaurants? What's going to happen if I cannot fill out? What of my lifelong fantasies of getting on a plane, going to Japan, and eating sushi in a low-cramped sushi bar, dimly lit with a bamboo counter, watching a master as he stands on the counter opposite of me, and watching as his hands move methodically and filled with wisdom? Watch as he places in front of me, almost in slow motion, a piece of otoro or rice, and I eat quite possibly one of the most amazing things ever created by mankind. What if I don't ever get to eat real sushi, the one thing that I've craved more during lockdown than pretty much everything else? And so today on Let's Talk About Chef, the history, story, and sheer obsession of sushi. As with all things amazing and delicious, there is usually a past that is filled with lies, legends, and rumor, and sushi is no different. There is an ancient Japanese wives' tale that sushi was born when an elderly woman began hiding her pots of rice in osprey nests for some reason. Over time, she forgot they were there, and when she finally remembered and she returned to the nest to collect them, the rice had begun to ferment and the raw fish scraps left over from the ospreys were mixed in with her rice and it tasted wonderful. Not only raw, but the fermenting rice also acted as a way to preserve the raw fish. Now, that is a cool story, and would make finding the origin of sushi a lot more easy, but just like Icarus the boogeyman and the jury is still out on the tooth fairy, the old woman climbing a cliff to store some rice in a bird of prey's nest isn't true. There is a 4th century Chinese cookbook that mentions salted fish being placed in cooked rice, causing it to ferment and preserve itself. And that is, as far as we know, the first time a sushi-related dish was ever written about. Now, for those of you playing at home, that was around 1,720 years ago. But the knowledge of preserving fish in rice can be dated back to 2,300 years ago. After the rainy seasons in southern China, lakes would flood the rice paddies and fish would swim inland, getting stuck in the fields when the water soaked back into the ground. Because there were so many fish, preserving them all was extremely necessary. Sushi came from the idea of preserving fish almost 2,000 years ago when rice begins to ferment, lactic acid is formed. The acid, along with salt, causes a reaction that slows the growth of bacteria in fish. 
Essentially, you are pickling the fish in rice. And it's why sushi kitchens are called sukaba, or the pickling place. Things took time to spread in the ancient world, but slowly, village by village and traveler by traveler, the idea and knowledge of preserving fish in rice likely traveled from one single rice field in China to Japan by the 9th century or 500 years after it first appeared. Buddhism in Japan had become the main religion by this time, and with the strict no-meat diet of Buddhists, Japanese people turned to fish as their source of protein, and it was sometime in Japan that the first ever preparation of sushi as a dish, which meant that the aged rice was eaten with the fermented fish at the same time, happened. And it's still known as nare sushi, or aged sushi. Funazushi, the earliest form of aged sushi, was eaten more than a thousand years ago near Lake Baiwa, Japan's largest freshwater lake. This lake is packed with fish and golden carp would be caught from its waters, put into clay pots packed with salted rice, and then weighed down to speed up the fermentation process. The faster fermentation would still take up to six months to finish, and was usually only available for the most wealthy, not unlike when new exciting technology comes out today, like a new iPhone with a price tag that makes most regular people not be able to afford it. By the 15th century, Japan was in the middle of a civil war. And during that war, cooks found that by really weighing down the salted rice and fish with heavy stones, they could cut the fermentation time from six months to one month. One brave cook also discovered that the fish didn't need to be fully pickled for it to taste great. It could be eaten almost raw on the rice, and that type of sushi was called nari sushi, or raw sushi. In 1606, a Japanese military dictator moved the capital of Japan from Kyoto to Edo, which eventually became Tokyo, and basically overnight, Edo turned into a city with a nightlife. By the 19th century, it had become one of the world's largest cities, and to feed the massive population quickly, vendors on the street would place a layer of cooked rice soaked in rice vinegar with raw fish. The layers would then be pressed in a wooden box for only two hours and then sliced, essentially looking almost what we assume to be sushi now. But it wasn't quite there, and it would take another 200 years for it to happen. By 1820, in the capital city of Edo, a man named Hanaya Yohei was about to invent something magical. He wanted to serve sushi without the long preparation times. And so he developed the nigiri sushi, which is raw marinated or simmered fish placed directly on top of vinegared rice and hand-molded together. And this new preparation method took Ito literally by storm. The idea that you could eat sushi quickly, basically the invention of fast food, was a revelation. By 1824, he was selling his sushi from a box he carried on his back. But as his sushi became more popular, he was able to move to a stand where lines would stretch down the block. Because of the popularity of his sushi, copycat carts were soon everywhere in Edo. Hundreds of them would roll out every night to feed the late-night crowds. Stands and carts would be everywhere, slinging sushi for drunk, happy people out on the town until the Kanto earthquake struck Tokyo in 1923. This earthquake hit hard, 7.9 on the Richter scale, and lasted for more than 9 minutes, causing firestorms and even fire tornadoes. Over 60 kilometers from Tokyo, it even moved the great Buddha statue that weighed 121 tons, almost two feet to the left. The death toll was massive. Almost 121,000 people died in a matter of minutes, and even though there was devastation everywhere, real estate suddenly became very cheap in Tokyo. Cheap enough that the sushi carts could afford rent for small restaurants, and sushi has been served indoors ever since. 
As time passes, people tend to obsess, to want to master, to become the best. And the main difference between whatever you have eaten that's called sushi and what truly great sushi can be comes down to the knowledge and obsession of the person who makes it. To become a true sushi master chef takes years, and you start out as an apprentice. You can go to school and learn how to make sushi, but no one will really take you seriously unless you have spent the time learning how to do the thing properly. Apprentices start by learning how to clean properly. This includes washing, scrubbing, and cleaning everything in the kitchen. And as you apprentice, literally you have to prove your dedication for cleanliness before a promotion in the kitchen will even be whispered about. Your life is about cleaning, that's it. You had better do it better and more thoughtfully than anyone else. Respect is also huge in sushi kitchens, and an apprentice must show respect for coworkers who are also learning to make sushi, of course the sushi master, and the customer. The cutthroat world of North American kitchens and backstabbing does not happen. Let's say the chef decides that you have passed the cleanliness test. Your character and resolve as an individual shows promise. Then and only then will you be taught how to cook the rice. Sushi rice is a closely guarded secret in each sushi restaurant. The exact method of carefully blending it with vinegar and salt will slowly be taught to you over the course of up to five years. And if at the end of your rice training you can make it exactly the same way as your superiors, you will be given the position of Wakita. The name Wakita means close to the chopping board. Remember, you still haven't even touched a fish yet. And it will probably take you several more years to move from the Wakita to a fully-fledged Itame or sushi chef. Being a Wakita means you're responsible for things like grating ginger, preparing wasabi, chopping scallions, and finally learning at some point how to prepare fish. At the time you start to learn the secrets of fish prep, you will also be allowed to start to learn about and how to use the hosho or sushi knives which is a huge achievement. Being allowed to use those knives means that you have earned the respect of the sushi chef. Eventually, normally after 10 years, you can become a sushi chef. In the same time it takes to get a doctorate, you will have become the most revered and respected of chefs. The knowledge of ingredients of fish and how to prepare them is astounding. And the food, of course, is incredible. But it's not just that dedication to that 10-year period and then all of a sudden at the end of it, you're done. Sushi master chefs spend decades of their lives, their entire careers, doing the same thing every day and slowly and over time becoming the best at it. That's the dedication to the craft that is sushi and that's the dedication that you will eat when you eat in front of one. This is a reminder that this episode of Let's Talk About Chef was being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now, you can get the New York Times for $1 a week. That's $1. That's nothing. That's no money. I mean, it might be a lot of money to, like, a child. But you're an adult. You got lots of dollars. And if you don't, you're doing something wrong. Maybe you should start reading the New York Times to get smarter so you can get a better job. And then you can get more dollars. Hey, I'm not here to judge. But... You should probably get your news from a trusted source. Not, you know, Facebook, or social media, or Instagram, or Twitter. God. I don't really understand why Twitter works the way it does. I mean, the trending buttons make no sense. Genghis Khan was trending today. They want to cancel Genghis Khan. He's been dead since, like, 1100. Who cares? Move on. Anyway, subscribe to the New York Times.
Even though sushi has its history stretching back like 2,500 years, it's still a relatively new food in the form that we know and eat it. But outside of Japan, sushi has made its way to pretty much every part of the world. But America has embraced it more than any other country. Los Angeles was the first city in the States to have a sushi restaurant. In 1966, Kawafuku Restaurant in Little Tokyo was the first place stateside to offer sushi and introduced the cuisine to curious Americans. Then the restaurant Osho opened in Hollywood and sushi bars quickly opened in New York, Chicago, everywhere else. Now, along with sushi in North America came inventions such as the hand roll, the California roll, all-you-can-eat sushi, and that weird combination of like Korean, Chinese, and Japanese food all being served in the same restaurant that deems themselves a sushi bar. I shit you not, I went to an all-you-can-eat sushi bar with Tim, and they served cheddar cheese sushi. It was a slice of cheddar cheese on rice wrapped in seaweed. It was fucking disgusting. Now, I have nothing against all-you-can-eat sushi. In fact, it is one of my guilty pleasures. But so is once in a blue moon eating fast food. It's not good, but it fills you up, and that's fine. But everyone once in their life should eat real sushi, prepared by somebody who has mastered their craft. Somebody who has spent decades learning every inch of their cutting board, every inch of the fish they are preparing and serving, maintaining and honoring a tradition that goes back thousands of years and ends up in front of you. A perfect flavor bomb that to the uneducated seems just like raw fish on rice. I hope that one day I can go to Japan and do that. I hope that you can too. I hope that we can all, one day soon, travel. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced, as always, by Tim McDonald. I want to thank the New York Times for again letting me talk about them this week. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. We will be back as soon as we can be, and so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service, and have a great week. The dark end of the street. That's where we always meet. Hiding in shadows where we don't belong. Living in darkness to right our wrong. Dark in a street, you and me. I know time's gonna take its toll. We have to pay for the love we stole. It's a And we know it's wrong, but our love keeps coming on strong.